come this morning to continue in our study of Christ being made a curse for us. Now last Lord's Day, we discussed how He has redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. This is the great substitution that Christ made for us. Our sins laid on Him and Him judged in our place at Calvary. Because of this, Paul tells us, we can receive the blessing of Abraham, which is principally righteousness, justification by faith, and not by our own works. And we also receive the promise of the Holy Ghost by faith. He makes us alive, able to believe and understand the gospel. First of all, the apostles tied the gift of the Holy Ghost with the gospel promises. At Pentecost, Peter exhorted the hearers to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus, promised them that they would receive the Holy Ghost just as Jesus had promised us. The Holy Ghost witnesses the truth about Jesus to our hearts. And this enrages Christ's enemies because it gives us boldness to proclaim Christ as our Prince and as our Savior. The Holy Ghost coming to the Gentiles was the proof that they too can believe and receive Christ's work of redemption. Peter preached to Cornelius, the Gentile centurion, and while he yet spoke the words of salvation, all the audience believed the promises of forgiveness of sin by Jesus Christ, and the Spirit was poured out upon them all. This proved to stubborn Peter that Christ's gospel is for all men everywhere, not only for Jews. He could not gainsay the manifest work of the Holy Ghost in those lost Gentiles. The centurion and his people spoke in tongues at that point by miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. This was meant to be a proof to the Jewish skeptics that they had actually trusted in Jesus and Jesus had received them as his own people. Peter recited all these incidents in defense of his obedience to preach the gospel to Gentiles as well as to Jews. The other Jewish church leaders were satisfied and rejoiced that faith and salvation and repentance were given to Gentiles also. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes of the unity that the Spirit brings to God's redeemed people. First, that Christ's atoning death brings us together because it abolishes the claims of the law against us and makes all around peace between Jewish and Gentile believers and with God Himself. Christ being made a curse to redeem us preaches peace in Christ's church and among the brethren and with God. But then Paul observes that the Spirit gives us all free access to God the Father, since only the Spirit of God can know the things of God intimately. The Spirit's indwelling of the saints ties us to God in knowledge and understanding of God. The promise of the Spirit dwelling in believers is a more intimate connection to God than even that between friends among earthly families and even between husband and wife. Paul then describes the church by the metaphor of a building, of a temple. Christ is the cornerstone. 
that determines, imposes righteousness and truth in the building. We become part of the building. A temple wherein God dwells by His Spirit in us. The Apostle John describes the love of God toward us, first displayed in His Son, sent by God to be a propitiatory sacrifice to save us. This is Christ being made a curse for us, proving God loves us so. But then, John goes further. He has given us His Spirit that we may know that we dwell in Him and He in us. Finally, that indwelling together of believer in God by Spirit is shown when we declare the truth about who Jesus is, the very Son of God sent to redeem us. But of course, God could not send His Spirit to indwell an unrighteous and wicked people. That is why the promise of the Spirit was contingent upon Christ being made a curse for us, so that God might declare us righteous and justify us. The Holy Ghost can dwell in us only because Christ's death abolished our crimes against God, took away the wrath and purchased peace for us with God. Around the Lord's table, we celebrate what Jesus did when He died to save us. He has taken away our sin that we might be forgiven and pardoned and cleansed and justified and given the Holy Ghost to dwell in us and cement us unto our God. Now we move a little further, and you recall the text is from Galatians 3 at verse 13. That reads, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For as it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might be received by us, that we might receive the promise of the Holy Ghost by faith. So today, the fact is addressed that the Holy Ghost indwelling us so, in such a manner, makes a difference in our conduct. We are not only indwelled by the Spirit as a point of identity, as a point of connection or means of connection with God, but our conduct is transformed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we read these verses at verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. And here Paul is rebuking the uncleanness, physical uncleanness, that would attempt to force God who dwells in us by the Spirit They would attempt to force him to then be in union with this great wickedness, with a harlot, with a prostitute, or with any other sin that we take upon ourselves, which we ought not to. Flee fornication, every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. But then look here, verse 19. What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 
So here we come to the introduction to this concept that the Spirit indwelling believers entails or has the consequence of making it improper for believers to carry on in their sin because the Spirit dwells in them as in a temple. You think about that imagery. Our bodies are a house unto the Lord. The Lord dwells in this old house, as the gospel hymn puts it. God dwells in this old house that is our body. Well, that is a a solemn thing, isn't it? It's something that because we can't see it or feel it tangibly, uh, we tend to let slide from our consciousness. But Paul would have us to remember that God dwells in us and therefore there is a, a sanctification that is ongoing to purge us from indwelling sin and unrighteousness. The Holy Ghost dwells in us. God owns us, Paul then goes on to say. You're not your own for you're bought with a price. And what is the price? The precious blood of Jesus shed to save His people from their sin. You see, He's bought us so that we are no longer, as it were, the rulers of our bodies, but rather He has taken over by the work of Christ in redeeming us. And so therefore, the conclusion is that we ought to glorify God in our bodies and in our spirits. That because God dwells in us through the Holy Ghost, we have a duty to separate ourselves from wickedness and sin and to glorify, that is to magnify, exalt, proclaim in our conduct and in our thoughts and our deeds the glory and majesty of the God who now dwells in us. Our body and our spirit are no longer our own. They are the Lord's. So we are to behave as if we are God's purchased possession, because we are. As if we are continually in the presence of God. You can imagine that if you went to God's temple in Old Testament Israel, you would be very, very careful, unless you are a reprobate, to behave in the house of the Lord. Not to carry on any shenanigans or bring any sin there. And that was one of the evils that God rebuked Israel for, was that they would bring into the actual temple area crass commercial interests, or even worse, acts of idolatry and even prostitution in the temple of God. And this is something that ought not to be. And that is what Paul is urging upon the believers. Treat your body and your spirit as if They are temples of the Lord because they are, because the Holy Ghost dwells in you. And you ought not to behave like you used to because now you're the temple of God. Now the Holy Ghost unites us with Christ and that's because Jesus has slain our sin in the flesh, that is in His body at the cross, and already executed all the laws and punishments in Himself in our place. So you see, the work of Christ on the cross, and this comes, of course, from what we read in Romans chapter 8 this morning, the work of Christ on the cross has slain our sin. 
How was it slain? It was slain by God's judgment against Jesus, having taken on himself, having had imputed to himself our crimes. He was punished in our place. Once the law executes the full measure of its punishment against sin, then that person is free from sin. Usually he's dead, but in Christ's case, he rose again. Now, our sin in Christ has been put away forever. And because we are in Christ by faith in the sacrifice He made, it's been put away from us as well. We're no longer subject to the law and its punishment of our sin because the punishment's been exhausted in Christ. And the gravamen of what Paul will argue here and in Galatians 5 is then we need to act like the sin is dead. And we're dead to all those things and alive in Jesus Christ. Dead to sin, alive unto righteousness. We being dead to all that now are alive by the Spirit in Christ to live unto righteousness. We live in the Spirit. The Holy Ghost is our life. We don't have any any life in ourselves while we have the leftover physical existence that we have. But Christ through the Holy Ghost, has implanted into us real spiritual life unto righteousness. And all the life that we have in God, all the obedience that we carry on unto the Lord, is by the Spirit. His life, His power is working in us to do the things that before we were incapable to do. Why? Because of the weakness of the flesh, as Paul puts it. And so we live in the Spirit, that is the Holy Ghost is our life, and when we walk in the Spirit, that is to travel along with the Holy Ghost, to heed His voice, to obey His urgings towards righteousness, to seek not to live in the old paths, but to walk in the new path, led by the Spirit, enlightened by the Spirit, then you see, we will begin to keep the Lord's commandments out of fear of the law? No. We can have no fear of the law judging us anymore, for it's judged all of our crimes in Christ already. No, now we can live and walk in and keep the Lord's commandments out of love and affection for the one who has redeemed us and by the power of the Spirit that now dwells in us. In Romans 8 at verse 2, we read this, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Here Paul is teaching what I just had summarized, that the law, we could never carry on in righteousness under law-keeping and by fear of the punishment of the law because the flesh is weak. The flesh is fallen. The flesh is tempted by all sorts of lusts and avarice and greed and so forth. There was never any hope of us being righteous by the law-keeping for righteousness. And you can substitute for that any sort of rituals that your church imposes on you or any sort of baptisms and whatnot. None of that can save anybody. None of that keeping of the law 
for purposes of obtaining our own righteousness has any hope at all. For all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God, as Isaiah the prophet put it. But because the law couldn't do, couldn't make us righteous, because it's weak through the flesh, God destroyed that law of sin and death in the Lord Jesus by putting to death our sins and answering fully the justice of the law in the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And so now, you see, we've been freed to have that righteousness fulfilled in us if we walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, at verse 8, we read this, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. So again, this is another sort of a backdoor way of repeating what's been preached over and over all through the New Testament, that those who have believed on Jesus, savingly believed and trusted in His sacrifice and laid aside all their pretenses at their own self-righteousness, they have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them. And this is not dependent on what they do or how they look or how they behave. If they are saved by Christ, they have the Spirit of Christ in them. This means that they are no longer of the flesh. The law of sin and death in the flesh has no hold on them. That does not mean that they never sin. But what it means is that all their hope of life and all their answer to the judgment of the law is found in the Lord Jesus and indwells them by the Spirit of God. You're not of the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be the Spirit of God dwell in you. And if you are a believer and if you have trusted in Jesus, then you have the promise of Christ. The Spirit of God dwells in you. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So you see, our own conduct, according to the old rules of the law, are that we're dead, we're in judgment. But the new rule, because Christ has redeemed us from all that, is that the Spirit is life because of righteousness, because of Christ's righteousness. But because we have life through the Spirit and because of Christ's righteousness imputed to us, then you see the Spirit can work in our lives to produce fruit of righteousness in our own conduct. And in this world, it will never be perfect because we still have that old flesh dragging us down and competing and fighting against the Spirit. But nevertheless, the Holy Ghost is here now working that righteousness, which is by Christ, working it out in the hearts of His people. Now, the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Ghost in us washes us, justifies us, and sanctifies us, that is, sets us apart in our conduct. We are sanctified the moment we trust in the Lord Jesus. We are set apart as God's people. We are inhabited by the Holy Spirit. To be sanctified means to be set apart as holy, holy unto the Lord. But that process is also continuing, and we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
this text that describes the difference between our old ways and the new condition, the new situation we find ourselves in. Verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So you see, the Holy Ghost applies to us when He indwells us all the virtues and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus so that we are justified and we're sanctified. We're in the process of being made holy in our actions by the work of the Holy Ghost, applying the blood of Jesus and the obedience of Jesus to us as He dwells in us. We are not to wallow in those former sins that we've been rescued from, but we're to be sanctified by the Spirit within us. And then, of course, there is the great text in Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5 that describes the fruit of the Spirit in us. Notice it's not the works that we do in us, but it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's something that's given to us, that's worked in us, not by our own labor or our own vain attempts to obtain our own righteousness by works of the flesh, but rather a work of the Spirit in us and upon us unto righteous deeds. Look at what it says in Ephesians 5 at verse 8. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk. As children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. This idea that the Spirit works in us things that we could never work ourselves is why he uses the metaphor of fruit, that is the Spirit bearing these things in us, producing these things in us, rather than the works of the flesh, which cannot please God. And then in Galatians 5, of course, there's an extended use of this term, the fruit of the Spirit. But first, he says, there is the lust of the flesh. Verse 16 of Galatians 5, This I say, walk in the Spirit, ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would, but if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such light, of which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice those are the works of the flesh. Now you see, that goes contrary to all of what mankind's own self-created religion would teach us. While we've got to work in our flesh, we've got to work to obey 
the commandments of God. We've got to do that to obtain our own righteousness before God, to satisfy God. But no, notice that the works of the flesh, he doesn't include any good things in there, does he? That's because if there could be any good thing worked in a sinner by the work of the flesh, by the keeping of the law for self-righteousness, it would be a nullity in God's sight because all of those deeds are evil in His sight. Why? He only records the nasty, wicked, evil sins that are the result of the works of the flesh. You see people grind and grind and grind in their hopeless attempt to obtain their own righteousness by keeping the law. And all God records is all the times they failed, all the times they did evil, all the times they broke His law, because those are really only the things, only the works of the flesh that count. And they count unto what? Judgment, condemnation, and helplessness before a holy God. You remember when the Lord comes in Matthew 26 and sets up His throne with His angels and He judges the sheep and the goats. You remember that He remembers against the sheep, that is, His, his people, only the kindnesses that they did towards His people. And they, they deny, remember, doing any of those things, you see. But the Lord knew. But have you noticed that He remembers against the wicked only the evil things they did towards His people. Which, of course, they deny. They don't remember doing any of that stuff either. But there is a rule that when it comes to the Lord's people versus the wicked, that God tends to remember against the wicked all their wicked deeds and to count as nothing all their great deeds that they did in their own flesh in their attempt to satisfy and please God. But against His people, He remembers the things that He wrought in them that were good things. Now, that's not to mean that there won't be a, an accounting at some point of all of our acts and that, that our reward is determined in glory upon certain things. But nevertheless, when it comes to our salvation, you see, Paul is saying here that People who follow after the law for righteousness and who try to obtain their own righteousness. The result of all that is a pile of wicked acts that the Lord takes offense at. And that exclude them from the kingdom of God. But then notice what he says at the next verse of what we were reading in Galatians 5 at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit. Notice again, it's not the works of the flesh, not the deeds of the law, the fruit of the Spirit. That is, what is produced in the believer by the Holy Ghost as He sanctifies us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such things there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts thereof. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So here is Paul's exhortation. To submit to the work of the Holy Ghost in your heart, in your mind, in your body. And He will produce in you 
these sweet and precious fruit of His Spirit towards godliness and righteousness. This is, of course, consistent with what is written in another place, that God works in us to will and to do of His good pleasure, so that in the end, the good pleasure of His will that we perform is not of ourselves, not of our attempt to keep the law, not of our attempt to establish our own righteousness, but it's the power of God. And the Scriptures teach this power is exercised primarily by the Holy Ghost living in us. The power of God that causes us to desire to do His good pleasure and then to actually carry it out. And of course, none of it's perfect in this life, but one day when we see Jesus, it will be made clear and will be made perfect. Note the emphasis to put no confidence in the flesh for law-keeping to righteousness, but rather to yield to the Holy Ghost in you, and He will work in and through you His gentle and righteous fruit. This transformative work of the Holy Ghost is described as a changing of our faces unto the glory of the face of Jesus. You remember in 2 Corinthians 3, that precious text in which Paul first describes the blindness that the veil of the law for righteousness places over people who are seeking to establish their own righteousness. And then at the end, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3, But we all, that is, believers who've trusted in Jesus, with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. There is in the working of the Holy Ghost in us a transformation of ourselves unto the image of Christ. And it happens when... By the Spirit, we gaze upon the glory of Christ. We look at Jesus. We rejoice in His beauty and glory and obedience. And the more we seek Him, and the more we behold that glory, the Spirit changes us into His image. From one level of glory to the next higher, and to the next higher, and to the next higher... How is this? It is through the reading of the Scriptures, the reading of God's Word, through meditation upon the greatness and goodness of God, through worship, the celebration of Christ's goodness and greatness and glory, and His exceeding love for us and what He did to save us. As we consider these things, the Holy Spirit, changes us to be more like unto our Lord Jesus. He became a curse for us. What wonder. Jesus became a curse for us. What wonder. What sacrifice. What a price He paid to rescue us. And as we gaze upon Jesus, the Holy Ghost will transform us into His image. This is a mystery. And yet it is what the Scriptures say is the means by which 
the Holy Ghost sanctifies the people of God. And at the Lord's table, we get our chance to gaze upon the work of Jesus to save us. Not that this bread and this wine are the body and blood of Christ, but rather that they were ordained by the Lord Jesus to represent and to remind us of the work He was about to do that very next day. He gave us this bread and wine to remember how His body and blood are our very life. Our very life and eternal salvation and happiness are so dependent upon the actual body and blood of Christ that He shed, that was broken on the cross and His blood that He shed on the cross that our, our whole existence, you see, as believers is dependent upon that body and that blood. And it's a spiritual thing, but it's as if, by analogy, we feed upon it. We feast upon it. It's, it's, our, it's our very life and existence, what Christ did. And so He gave us this bread and wine to remember how His body and blood are our very life. We recall the horrible price that Jesus paid for us. And because He did that for us, we receive not only forgiveness for our sin, not only everlasting life in the presence of the Lord, and not only is His righteousness accredited to us, but we also receive the Holy Ghost dwelling in us and changing us into the image of the Redeemer. I love the words of that song we sing on occasion. His beauty shineth far above our feeble power of praise. And we shall live and learn His love through everlasting days. The knowing this, that us He loves, hath made our cup run o'er. Jesus, Thy name, our spirit moves today. And evermore, oh, that our hearts may yearn for the sanctifying work of the Holy Ghost to change us into the image of Christ, to work His peaceable fruit in us, for it is God that worketh in us both to will and to do His good pleasure. Amen and amen. Let's give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice that when we could not find a lamb to be slain for us that would be acceptable to you as our substitute, you provided a lamb. You gave yourself a lamb to be slain for us in your dear Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he came into this world to save his people from their sins. And that when He went to the cross, dying in our place, He saved us from our sin. All who've put their trust in Him and set aside and repudiated all their own so-called righteous works and lean only upon the sacrifice of Jesus. As if we go to the temple, lay our hands upon the sacrificial lamb and cry out, O God, judge my crimes in the body of this Dear Lamb, thy Son. And God does it. And we're set free from the judgment. And Christ is raised again in power and glory because He has satisfied all the demands of justice for us in our place. Therefore, the prisoner must be set free 
And so he is for all eternity. And we with him, we who've trusted in him, we're set free along with Jesus. And one day he will raise us up in power and glory unto himself. And then all the work that the Holy Spirit has worked in us to sanctify us will be brought to that final consummation when, as John the Apostle wrote, we see him as he is and we're made like unto him. Lord, bless us as we partake of this feast and as we consider this picture of the body of Christ broken for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup. I'd like to ask my father if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for the remission of sin. And the scriptures tell us after they had supped that Jesus took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until he comes. Let's stand and sing number 96 in the black book. Philip P. Bliss's hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior. I love that verse that says, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Number 96.